When I first opened the new ESV Reader's Bible, I turned to the book of Ezekiel. I'm not exactly sure why. I guess the book had gone neglected by me for some time, and it seemed like a really good book simply to read straight through in a biblical text that flows unhampered with no headings and no chapter numbers and no verse numbers. Reading a prophet straight through would give me a good sense of this new Bible, and indeed it did. When I came to the end of Ezekiel, I started over and read it a second time, and then I started over and read it a third time. Of course, Ezekiel is not a clean and tidy book. The prophetic books, like the prophets themselves, are rough. Ezekiel is raw. It's abrasive. The images of God are potent, even when they are sometimes completely unimaginable. Ezekiel is loaded with descriptions of God that would stretch the imagination of the best graphic artists. Some scenes are out of a sci-fi movie. Some scenes themselves are enactments of street theater. At all times, the book is loaded with startling symbolism, and its heartbroken laments weigh down almost to the point where the weight of God's holy transcendence seems almost like it will shatter humanity. And then in the turn of a moment, God's eminence draws close, promising to dwell with his people, even to dwell inside of his people one day. I finish Ezekiel a third time and look over at my stack of new, fresh books off the printing presses from Christian publishers. I page through a few of them, but nowhere getting a glimpse of the God of Ezekiel, except for one book. One book titled Yawning at Tigers. You can't tame God, so stop trying. A new book written by Drew Dick the managing editor of Leadership Magazine. Perhaps it was the flavor of Ezekiel that had prepared me for it, but Yawning at Tigers was impressive. It's a book about the folly of getting bored with God. In truth, God is dangerous. And that's exactly what our worship and our lives and our holiness and our mission needs. We were made to love and fear and serve an Isaiah 6 God, a bring us down to the floor on our knees before his majesty, God. At one point in the book, Drew writes this, quote, As unpopular or uncomfortable as it might be to speak of a dangerous God, it is crucial we do so, not only because we need an accurate view of God, and not merely because we wish to reap the incredible rewards promised to those who fear the Lord. Seeing God as dangerous is essential to how we live. As children of our Father in heaven, we too are called to be dangerous. I'm not talking about being violent or destructive, but like God, we should be dangerous to evil and injustice, a holy threat to anything that preys on the innocent, crushes the powerless, and enslaves people to sin. End quote. In another place, he writes this, quote, Here's the beautiful irony. Making God strange actually enables us to know him more. Once we have marveled at his magnitude and mystery, we are able to achieve the deep intimacy that grows out of a true appreciation for who God is. End quote. Yawning at tigers is Drew's way of saying that we are prone to be bored with God, which is senseless given his majesty, glory, holiness, and awesomeness. So why would we be so foolish to yawn at this all-powerful God? Is it because we lack knowledge of who he truly is in Scripture? Or is it a lack of faith that how he reveals himself in Scripture is real and true? Or maybe it's both. Here's Drew Dick. I'd definitely say it's both. You know, first of all, we can't marvel at God's greatness and grandeur unless we learn about who he is, right? Um, uh, and some of that can happen through observing uh, him in, in nature, but really um, encountering him through his special revelation that is through scripture is paramount. And unfortunately, as you probably know, we're facing an epidemic of biblical illiteracy 
uh, not only in the culture at large, but also, unfortunately, in the church. So if we don't know who God is, then it, it, it doesn't really matter that he loves you. Uh, you know, sometimes I think, how strange does it sound, especially when we come up to people that don't have much biblical knowledge and we say things like, Jesus loves you or God loves you so much. And they go, well, who cares, right? Because they don't know who this God is. It would be akin to me, you know, coming to you and saying, Zeus loves you so much. You know, he, he has a wonderful plan for your life and he just wants to bless you. Well, okay, who's Zeus? Did I take, you know, Greek mythology in college? You don't know who Zeus is. You don't even know if he's real. So I think we have a lot of work to do to back up and say, hey, listen, we, first of all, let me tell you who this God is, how he reveals himself in Scripture, how great and glorious and, and amazing this God is. Then the gospel becomes good news, that this God loves you, that he created a way to bridge the gap between us. So, yeah, I think that the fact that we don't know enough about God in our culture and in our churches is a huge obstacle to that. Um, but then secondly, um, often, you know, there's a growing incredulity toward the trustworthiness of Scripture as well. Uh, and it's interesting to me that in most cases, at least that I've encountered, um, people with the lowest view of Scripture or who are also the people who have um, the least familiarity with it. I remember uh, one professor that I had in college, and uh, she would repeatedly bash the Bible at every chance she got. Uh, one time in a private conversation with her, she admitted to me that, you know, I've actually never read the Bible for myself. <laughs> and you go, well, of course, <laughs> of course you don't think much of it, um, because you're just parroting what you've heard others say. And so that's an obstacle, too. And now for those of us who are, you know, consider ourselves Bible-believing Christians, I think we can get bored of God, too, because you know, our, our spiritual lives just become sort of routine, lackadaisical, and we go through the motions, and we don't stop ever to go, wow, who is this God that we're worshiping? Uh, this is the God of Isaiah 6 that he saw high and lifted up above the temple. Uh, this is the God before whom people fell as though dead in Scripture. So sometimes I think we need to be you know, pulled up short, reminded of, of that, you know, the dramatic majesty of God and, and to keep that at the forefront of our minds so we do not get last, lackadaisical before this great and holy God. Amen. I mean, this is really key. Understanding God's transcendence then gives gives his love more significance, right? Mm, yeah, you know what? It really, you know, I talk a lot about how in the church we have fallen short. I am an insider, so I hope I, I speak as one who's just not overly critical or, you know, from the outside uh, pointing fingers. Um, but as a pastor's kid growing up inside the church, really knowing the subculture, there were a lot of times where I kind of look at church and the way we do church, and I think, you know, most of the worship songs we sing could be sung to God or a girlfriend. <laughs> um, sermons will drip with assurance of God's affection for us, and um, we say things like, Jesus would have died just for me, uh, you know, which is questionable. But, and, and the thing is, I don't want to come off as someone who's against God's love. Of course, I'm actually trying to magnify God's love by talking about his holiness. But I think we've lost sight, at least in the North American church, from what I've observed in my limited experience, we've lost sight of God's majesty and transcendence. And the cruel irony, I believe, of choosing God's love over his holiness is that we end up losing both. Because like I said earlier, if, if we're not talking about a great and majestic God, the one scripture self, say dwells in unapproachable light, then his love loses meaning. And so we need to maintain his holiness to truly appreciate the magnitude of his love. 
And so, and then honestly, it's something I've seen in my own spiritual life. Um, I get complacent. Um, uh, often my, my spiritual life is lackluster, and it's not that you know, every, every worship experience um, or personal devotion time is going to be a mountaintop experience, but we need to, to really remind ourselves exactly who it is we are worshiping and then approach him with the reverence and sobriety that he, that he deserves. Amen. In, in the book, you write this, we are reluctant to acknowledge, let alone celebrate a dangerous God, end quote. And uh, my guess is one of the reasons why we're reluctant is because there's incredible forces to overcome in celebrating God's dangerous side, not only pressures outside the church, but even from within the professing church. Uh, for example, when it comes to the satisfaction model of the atonement or penal substitution, um, you know, feminists see this as cosmic child abuse by a father who takes out his rage on an innocent son who absorbs abuse, or so they say. Um, new atheism then picks up on this argument. We see in postmodernism uh, that you know meta narratives are just power grabs, and every meta narrative just ends up oppressing someone. And so all these forces are sort of converging, meaning that any mention of God's holiness or His holy wrath against sin and judgment gets painted as abuse. Um, how much do you think these and other factors come into play in the church when, when there's so much pressure to downplay the hard things of God? Well, I think you've placed your finger on some of them. Uh, there are several reasons it's difficult to talk about God's dangerous qualities uh, because of the context we're in, the cultural uh, uh, moment. Um, one of those, like you mentioned, is feminism. Another, I would say, is all the religious violence that's perpetrated in the name of God, we see what's happening in the Middle East right now, and it's awful. Um, but I think really this boils down to a, a category confusion. A lot of the, the confusion comes from um, our anthropomorphism. That is to say, we project our humanity onto God. Okay, so when we spill out wrath, um, it's usually evil. Uh, so we assume that God's wrath is evil too, something akin to us throwing a childish fit. Uh, of course, God's wrath, as explained in the Bible, is, is a perfect holy wrath, and it's, it's different from our anger as night is from day. So, you know, when God kills someone in the Bible, we can't accept that because we imagine how wrong it would be for us to kill someone. But we fail to account for the fact that um, God has every right, as awful as it might sound to some people, to take a life because he gave it in the first place. We didn't give that life so we don't have the right to take it. So I think, you know, as a culture, we've worked hard to establish parity, um, equality among people, and some of that's very good, but then often we can project that toward the heavens and say, God, you have to play by the same rules we do. Um, and likewise, we project our own sinful versions of anger and those types of things onto God. And so we assume, and then we get all these caricatures that I don't even recognize that atheists talk about God as sort of cruel child abuser uh, toward his son. Well, when you read the scriptures, that's not how the atonement plays out. That's not how it works. Um, that's just really a mischaracterization. Um, you know, another thing, and I talk about this in the book, but really I'm done apologizing for God too. I think every few years, an atheist writes a book accusing God of, or not every few years, every few months really, an atheist writes a book accusing God of being mean and somehow simultaneously non-existent. Then we spill gallons of ink in response trying to defend God's actions. And I'm not trying to bash on apologists because I think the work they do is crucial. But sometimes my beef is that after we get through explaining away every passage in the Bible where God seems mean, 
he comes off as hapless or misunderstood. I would rather just say, hey, listen, God is dangerous. That's the way the Bible portrays him. You don't have to like it. Uh, you can deny his existence. You can pet him if you like. Just don't expect your arm back because he's a tiger. <laughs> he's a lion. Uh, he's dangerous. Um, and so at some point, I, I'm through trying to explain God's dangerous qualities away because some of it isn't explainable. And we just have to accept the way that he's chosen to reveal himself. That is so good. And, um, you, you know, one of the things that strikes me is how well you balance God's wrath with his love and kindness, his transcendence, his imminence. You do this really well in the book. I mean, God is God is completely holy always, and he completely loves all the time. And that seems to be a really hard balance uh, to get just right. It's very difficult, and not just for, you know, Christians out there. It's difficult for me. I um, It's tough to maintain this, you know, really what is a paradox that God is completely loving and completely holy, uh, completely imminent, that is close and near to us, and completely transcendent above and beyond us. Um, and yet we can't collapse one side of that paradox because we lose something crucial. And that's one of the distinctives of Christianity. Eastern religions do away with God's transcendence. Uh, other religions, like Islam, for in instance, highlight God's transcendence and deny his imminence. Uh, Christianity is unique in the sense that we insist that God is both transcendent and imminent, both holy and loving. And so, yeah, that's crucial, and it's tough to keep those in mind. And I think, you know, just because of, um, often because of our childhoods, our background experiences, our, our personalities, our psyches, we have a tendency to gravitate toward one um, attribute or another of God and neglect the other. So there are some people that say, you know, yeah, I get God's holiness. You know, I'm very aware of that. I, in fact, if anything, I feel like God sometimes is out to get me and I'm always falling short. Um, but I can't really accept his love. Then there are those folks that say, hey, listen, I love the passages in the Bible about God's love, but I just kind of get a little squeamish when I talk about his holiness. You know, for people on both sides, I encourage them, don't neglect the other side. Because, again, that's what makes God's love and his holiness so important, is understanding both sides of the equation. And the Bible, you know, put in the same passage often, you'll see both. Um, the Holy One of Israel is the God that is with us. Um, he, he's, he's above and beyond the, the world, and yet he's so close to us uh, that he numbers the hairs on our head. And so, again, that's the good news of the gospel, that this great and transcendent God loved us so much that he cooked up this costly and creative way to bridge the gap. And, and be with us and redeem us. Amen. And in the cross, God's wrath and his kindness merge together. Yeah. That's beautiful. And um, to preach and proclaim God's full character falls to those who are humble. I mean, we, we watch ISIS terrorize in the name of God. We see pastoral cover-ups, pastoral abuses of authority. Paradoxically, and you bring this point out in the book, uh, it's important to have the hard things of God preached through a humble man. I like what one of my friends said recently. He was actually talking specifically about hell. And he said, you know, we need to preach about hell, but we need to do so, you know, with brokenness in our voice and with humility. Um, you don't want to be bombastic, uh, arrogant, or certainly, you know, vindictive in your tone when you talk about some of these harder truths in Scripture. Um, and you need to do so, I think, with a, um, an acknowledgement that you too are fallen and in desperate need of God's grace. 
Um, we dare not kind of say, hey, we're on this side and we have it all right, and you guys need to get this view of God uh, because you're out to lunch. Um, we are all in the same position before this great and holy God in desperate need of his mercy. And so I think a lot is communicated by the tone. Uh, like you referenced in the, in, in the book, I talk about how difficult it is to talk about some of this stuff, even God's holiness in the time in which we live, in the Western world especially. Uh, people are very sensitive to that kind of talk. Um, but I think it's crucial that we do so because, you know, as, as adverse as they might be to that sort of talk about God, I think there's a deep-seated desire in everyone still to stand in the presence of a holy and transcendent God. And when they show up to church or they talk to us and all we talk about is, you know, a cosmic buddy who will just accept them how they are, I think we miss them. People are still thirsty for transcendence. They need to hear about a holy God. And even if they deny that they're sinful, I think deep down they know that they are and they know that they need the grace and mercy of a holy God. So I think it's crucial that we not sideline this message in a time when people are so desperate for it. How much tiger yawning uh, by professing Christians do you think is really ex exposed when it comes to a squishy sex ethic? Well, I think that's one of uh, the more visible symptoms um, of our lack of an appreciation for God's holiness. And let me explain what I mean by that. I've seen some staggering statistics that are hard to believe or even true about younger evangelicals and the amount that are just having sex before marriage and um, don't even seem to be uh, worried that it's sinful. I just talked to a friend recently, and, and uh, he knows a young man who is 20 years old at a Christian college, sleeping with his girlfriend. Maybe nothing too remarkable about that because it happens a lot. The interesting thing, though, was when his parents uh, confront him about it, and they said, listen, you're at this Christian college, you've signed a covenant not to engage in premarital sex, and yet you're, you're uh, uh, sleeping with your girlfriend. And he said, don't be so old-fashioned, it's not a big deal. You know, I'm, I'm still a Christian, it's just, you know, I, I waited until I was 20, I think that's pretty good. You know, he just didn't even seem to see a conflict between his Christian commitment and his lifestyle. I think you know, in past generations that may have happened, uh, but they would, you know, see it as a, sort of a rebellious act. Uh, the problem nowadays, and maybe this goes back to the biblical illiteracy, often younger evangelicals, these are kids raised in the church, don't even see the conflict between their behavior and what Scripture plainly teaches. And so that's alarming. And I think, you know, we lack a practice of personal holiness because we've lost a theology of divine holiness. And really, we shouldn't be surprised at this. When we neglect an element of God's nature, um, it's often those same characteristics uh, that we neglect in God's nature will go missing in our own lives. So I think it starts, it goes back to our vision of God. If we don't see God as holy, if we only see him as loving and accepting, well, we'll engage in all sorts of behaviors that we think we can get away with because God's not really you know, that serious about sin. Um, he's more into acceptance and, and tolerating our behavior. And so definitely what we've seen among the younger generation, and incidentally in the older generation too, people thinking they can just ditch their marriages or you know, have an affair uh, and that there will ultimately be no reckoning for that, it's because they've lost sight of God's holiness and uh, standards. Yeah, that's so important. And I want to keep talking about God's holiness because in the book you talk about the powerful love of God. And the impression I get from your book is that the more tame God is, 
the more self-reformation falls to us. You know, if, if God is powerful, dangerous, tiger-like, then he is pursuing me, he is transforming me with an initiating love on me. Um, but if God is tame and subdued, if he's you know, neutered, so to speak, all personal change really depends on my self-effort, my self-help, uh, my own efforts to clean up my life or hide what I can't fix. I mean, do I have that connection right? I think so. If we don't, if we don't really grasp and internalize the blazing holiness of God, um, then how are we going to be sanctified? How are we going to change? Um, that's what not only motivates us, but actually works in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. And so, you know, I think a lot of people out there have tried a lot of different things to change themselves. You know, they've consumed every self-help book that's come along. They've tried to find the secret. They've prayed a, prayed a formulaic prayer. Um, ultimately, of course, it's all fluff and it doesn't work. And what I'd like to say to those people is what if what's missing from your life are the deep things of God? You know, what if it's only a ravishing vision of God's holiness and love that will ultimately make the difference? Um, we see this repeatedly throughout Scripture. When people saw God, uh, they didn't stay the same. They changed. Um, when people hung out with Jesus, even though sometimes it was you know, slow progression, they ultimately changed. And so we have to do the same thing. Uh, and, and it's not by fashioning a domestic deity that is just all love and is sort of a divine therapist. What we really need is the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus, the one who's holy and loving. And being in the presence of that God, internalizing who he is, um, that ultimately will be what changes us and nothing that we can do on our own initiative. Well said. And you, your book presses past introspection and goes into mission, getting out and living bold for this tiger. Um, this is maybe what I love the most and need the most from your book. How does God's tiger likeness uh, fuel missions and evangelism? How, how does he make us dangerous? Well, in the book, I, I talk about um, how I watched a sitcom uh, in which one of the characters was struggling to go through with an arranged marriage. Uh, in his home country, uh, arranged marriages were the norm, but he'd been living in America for a while, and he was kind of having second thoughts about adhering to this uh, ancient custom, especially since he had never met his wife-to-be. But still, when she came into the airport, his parents sent her over. Um, he dutifully was waiting for her, flowers in hand, but a really gloomy expression on his face. But then when she stepped through the terminal, I remember everything changed. Uh, what happened? She was beautiful. Suddenly, this guy's glum demeanor disappeared, and uh, suddenly the thought of marrying this woman was no longer a dreaded duty. Instead, it was a delight. And I thought to myself, what had changed? Well, he had seen her. And I think often it's the same way with God. You know, we drag ourselves to church. We um, uh, try to volunteer. We try to be kind to our neighbors. Uh, we, we, you know, do our devotions. But there's no joy in it. It's kind of a, a duty. Um, and what changes that? I really think it's seeing God. When we see how majestic and holy he is, when we see how much he loves us, uh, when we see the untamed God of Scripture, suddenly we're energized to do his will. That passage with um, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where he sees this dramatic vision of God above the temple, um, I note how it's important to see how the passage ends. Although initially Isaiah is overwhelmed and terrified and unable to even speak really, 
um, he ends by saying, here I am, send me, right? There's this willingness to um, accomplish God's mission because he's seen a great and holy God. And I think it's the same with us. When we see God for who he really is, uh, you know, obedience to him, fulfilling his mission in the world is no longer a dreaded duty. It becomes a delight. We're energized to do his mission. Yeah. Speaking of the prophets, um, I mentioned Ezekiel earlier, and I've, I've been reading that book over and over again. And you've mentioned Isaiah 6 as a paradigm for everything we've talked about today. How important is it for Christians to read the prophets in the Old Testament and to really soak in the sort of raw transcendence of God that we especially find there? Yes, I think it's, it's critical that um, we read the prophets, especially in our day and age where we've made God into a, a buddy deity, a divine therapist, because it's the perfect antidote. You read <laughs> Isaiah, Ezekiel, and um, all of a sudden the stuff that you consume on you know, religious TV, not to pick on anyone, uh, will start to sound pretty hollow um, and silly. Um, you know, I, I make a quip in the book about how it, uh, if we had a, an Isaiah 6 vision of God, we wouldn't be asking them for good parking spots. And I'm not saying that God doesn't care about the minutia of your life, but I think maybe he cares less than we think he does. I think we, we, sometimes we have a village God, right? We have this myopic God that just cares about the little details of our lives, about making us comfortable, about keeping everyone safe. And I think we do a huge disservice, uh, not only to God, but to our own spirituality uh, when, we, when we do that. And so, yeah, reading the prophets, man, that is just a wake-up call. Um, to understanding who God is. Um, and, and, of course, it's not just the prophets. It's all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see this great and holy God. And so really being immersed in Scripture. And another thing is we need to teach and study the full counsel of God. I think it's interesting that uh, in North America, nine out of ten sermons that are preached are preached in the New Testament. Of course, there's nothing wrong with preaching from the New Testament. We have to. That's the, the, the lens through which we see all of Scripture. And yet, I think that's often a way of circumventing passages that portray God in ways that make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, but when we do that, ultimately, um, you know, the parishioners and even the preacher uh, lose out big time. I want to close our time together with a forecast. Um, you're a journalist. You edit the Leadership Journal for CT, and you study trends in the church. Um, from your perspective, are you hopeful or are you pessimistic when it comes to the knowledge about God flourishing again in the American church? Um, are American churches trending towards more yawning or more standing amazed by who God is? I would say I am not optimistic, uh, but I am hopeful. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. You know, by first of all, by every metric, the North American church is in decline. Uh, this is something that you know is a is a particular concern for me, and something I, I love reading about and researching. Uh, but whether you're talking about slumping church attendance, uh, growing biblical illiteracy, it doesn't look good. One of the, the trends that most concerns me is the rise of the people that are now claiming no religion. Um, more than, uh, it's 34% of people under 30 now claim no religion. That's a three-fold increase from just a few decades ago. Um, and so things aren't looking good. If there is a silver lining, I think that we will see a smaller, more committed core of Christians emerging. 
we are seeing the death of nominalism, that is name only Christianity in North America. Uh, because if you're going to be a Christian, you know, it's not, it's just no longer um, what you do if you're a good American. Uh, there isn't that social pressure to go to church. It's perfectly acceptable to mow the lawn and drink martinis. And so I think we're going to see yeah, a smaller, purer core, um, but by every metric, um, even Christians that do attend church are attending a lot less. And that concerns me. And then when you look at the kinds of churches, I don't want to get in trouble by naming names, but some of the largest churches in the country now um, aren't even preaching the gospel. Um, to put it frankly, they're, they're, they're preaching self-help sermons with the word God and Jesus sprinkled in. And that isn't the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, that, that concerns me. Now, what gives me a lot of hope when I look out at the, at, at the trends is what's happening in the global south, in the church around the world. We're seeing a fluorescence of faith that we haven't seen since the book of Acts. Uh, whether it's China, where some have predicted that within 20 years, one in three people in China could be Christians, or Africa, where 100 years ago, 10% of Africans identified as Christians. Today, it's 54%. Or South America, where whole cities are being swept with revival. God's on the move. You know, I mean, Jesus promised he'd build his church and the gates of hell wouldn't stand against it. And here we are, two millennium later, and... And, um, you know, one-third of humanity claims to follow Jesus. It's incredible. And the 1990s, we saw the greatest revival in human history. And that's just staggering to me because here in North America, you know, you think of the 90s. Well, what happened? You think of maybe the Monica Lewinsky scandal or O.J. Simpson trial. <laughs> but I was um, having lunch recently with uh, Patrick Johnston, who wrote... Um, uh, what's that uh, missions handbook operation world and um, and he's written a new book on uh, the faith in uh, of the church in the global south and he says the 1990s was the greatest gathering of people into the church in the history of the church and so often in the west at least we have blinders on and we do not we fail to see what God's doing worldwide so in short yes around the world not only the numbers of people coming to faith, but the, the fabric of their faith. They're so committed, and they, they definitely aren't yawning at God. They, they are standing amazed by this great and holy God. My concern, however, is for what's happening in the North American church. And my fear is that we're getting left behind. Um, and I want to be a part here in the North American church of what God is doing in our time, because it's exciting. And so really my challenge is for North American Christians is to wake up to the holiness and to the love of God and uh, be re-energized to do his mission. That was Drew Dick, author of the new book, Yawning at Tigers, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying, published by Thomas Nelson. The book is worth a read, and it will finish in my top list of books of 2014. It's very, very good. I encourage you to read it. Drew is the managing editor of Leadership Journal, a publication of Christianity Today. As with all the other episodes that have come before this one, episode number 35, is made possible because generous financial donors support Desiring God, people like you. So thank you for supporting our work. And if you'd like to partner with us to support this podcast and our other work, you can do that by going to DesiringGod.org. Click on the Donate tab on the top of the page. Your financial support is greatly appreciated. I'm your host, Tony Ranke, thanking you for making this podcast a part of your life. I'll see you next time.